There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Shares for beginners. I often make comparisons just with daily life to just make it easy to understand. If I would come to you and they say like, I've bought something for $12 at the supermarket. It was extremely cheap. And you would think like, well, what has he bought? I mean, how do I know whether $12 is cheap? Yeah? And, it's, and, and it's exactly the same in the share market. I mean, I've bought something at a PE of full in the number. And, and I go like, ah, a bargain. And you go like, well, what was it? I mean, it's not the PE itself that shows it to you. Yeah? G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How do investors measure the value of a company on an apples-to-apples apples basis? How much are investors willing to pay for a company? Like everything in investing, it starts out simple and gets complicated very, very quickly. To try and clear the air without muddying the waters, I'm joined by Rudy Filipek van Dyke from FN Arena. G'day, Rudy. Hey, good to be here. Thank you very much. Finally, and, and as you were saying before we went on air, you liked me invited. Everyone else hassles to come on this podcast, but not you. Very shy. Ah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say shy, but the first part is correct. So as editor, Rudy founded FN Arena in June 2002, having successfully built up an online financial news service in the Netherlands. His active career extends beyond three decades, including as publisher of printed magazines... Printed magazines. That's a, I know. a thing from mm. the past, isn't it? I mean, I almost feel like I'm grandpa now. Yes. Mm. yes. And you were an investigative reporter as well. Um, yes. Um, I once upon a time thought that uh, news is what you have to be, what, what has to be found, yeah. not not not, uh, not taken from press releases. But because uh, that's what journalism is these days, isn't well, it? It's just yes. so much of it's reprinting yes. oh, press absolutely. releases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's a. There's a multiple of reasons why that is, but mm. um, and, and no surprisingly, we see a decline of the importance of, 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 of regular, what people call mainstream media, mm. and the emergence of social media hasn't helped either. So I think it's just podcasters these days that are doing the investigations, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> well, luckily, we still have some investigative journalists uh, here and there, and, and they, do, they do do good work. Mm. Uh, we should all appreciate that. Okay, today we've uh, decided to get together to discuss the P.E. ratio, and this is based on a recent article that you wrote in your newsletter, and it's titled P.E.s, the tool that both enlightens and confuses. Yes, yes, it's uh, the the P.E. ratio. After three decades in finance, there's very little that surprises me. But one thing that does surprise me on occasion is uh, that one of the tools that is being widely used like just about everyone uh, uses it one way or another. And it, um, it is used in so many wrong ways. And, and, and also, even, even I, have to, I, have to, I have to add here, even many of the professionals are using it in ways that sometimes I'm literally scratching my head. And um, I always feel the, the need to, uh, to correct them when I'm in a, in a TV studio or radio studio, and on occasion I do, and, and I can see how embarrassed they are. And of course, I mean, since I'm on Twitter, there was a, there's a regular um, verbal fight going on, 
Um, the irony is, and this is one of the, the, the points I, I was making in that article from this week, is one of the ironies is, is that it all sounds very simple. I mean, and, and nobody would disagree with the fact that if you want to be a successful investor, you buy assets at a low price and, and you might, if you choose so, sell them when they're, when they're overvalued. The irony is that's not reflected in a low PE versus a high PE. There's a lot more to it, there's a lot more context required. And one of my favorite um, comparisons is, um, like you can, you can probably hear from my accent, I grew up in Belgium and we, uh, we learned French at school. And uh, one of my uh, favorite observations is that investing is actually a little bit like learning French. Uh, the teacher teaches you the rules and then uh, there's so many exceptions to every rule that if you don't know the exceptions, you actually can't speak French. And that's a little bit like investing as well. Like, yes, we, the, the, the price earnings ratio can, can be a very handy uh, and it's, it's readily available tool, but there are so many, there's so, many, so much context needed. There's so much, uh, there are so many exceptions to the rules that if you simply use it as a, a one size fits all, uh, you're gonna be desperately uh, disappointed. And, and if, you're, if you are successful, it'll be more luck than, than art. So what is the standard definition of a PE ratio? Let's go back to the basics. Yes, let's, let's go back to the basics for people who are maybe not necessarily familiar with it. So the price earnings ratio is literally the future profits uh, that investors pay in today's share price. So what you do as an investor is you, you divide the, the profitability of a company by the, the number of shares that are outstanding, so it becomes earnings per share. And that's, that gives you a, a, <clears throat> a low number on, on, on all occasions. And, and then you, you divide the current share price by that number. And that gives you something uh, between, let's say for the sake of argument, between three and 85. Um, now the common perception is that 85 is very expensive and three is extremely cheap, but that's not always the case. And I would actually say in, in most cases, that's, that's probably incorrect. And some people think that the earnings are the dividends, but it's not the dividends, no. is it? Yeah. What, what no. are the earnings? And, and that's also good that you point that yep. one out. Yep. One of the, I mean, like with everything, there are many traps and, 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 and obfuscations happening. And, and if you talk to any accountant, he or she will tell you that um, profits, earnings, that's by all means, that's an accountancy outcome. So that's one of the, one of the traps is of, of PE is simply relying on what the company publishes. And that may not necessarily be reflective of its underlying business. That is part of the context that you need. But mm. just in general, what you do is it's not the dividends. Dividends are a, a separate tool. And I personally, I pay attention to dividends because dividends come out of cash unless the company takes on more debt. But okay, again, context. But dividends come out of cash and that's why you should pay attention to, to dividends as well because... Um, you can't fake cash. Like somehow you need to pay that one out. Earnings you can fake. You can pull forward. You can you can uh, you can postpone. You can uh, take below the line, above the line, and etc. etc. But in gross terms, P ratios have been around for for for, for more than a hundred years. But they became very very popular uh, over the past three decades, I think. And and for some reason, over time, and you see that a lot of investors doing that. They they are simply using it as a I mean, as a standalone number, and low P is good, 
hype is not good, and that's incorrect. So what are we looking at when you go into your brokerage platform mm. and you, mm. it tells you what the yes. PE ratio mm. of a company is? Yes. What, what is it that they're actually showing you? It's based on previous figures no, or well in that, the last report? That, that's, that, that's also a very important one, yes. So traditionally, what we do as investors, we look at last year's profits and we, we calculate the, the PE ratio on the basis of that one. Now, I happen to believe that that's also incorrect because financial markets are forward-looking. Um, so the service I provide with FN Arena is we always, I actually refuse to add the backward-looking PE ratios on my website. I, I want investors to look forward. Now, the criticism is always, but those forecasts are incorrect. True. Um, forecasts are as rubbery as you can make them. Um, just listen to any weatherman on any, on any day. But you can't fix the malleability of forecasts by looking in the past, because the past is, is not going to show you the future. I mean, it's that simple. And, and the, the easiest example to illustrate that with is, and this is also how financial markets constantly look forward and why the PE ratio can be very confusing. See, in 2020, all, all the profits would take a big dive because we are going into, into lockdowns, people can't go to work, people get, get ill, we, we can't spend, etc., etc. So pretty much most of the companies in, in Australia and, and globally have a big dive in their, in their profitability. At that point in time, a lot of people get confused because the average PE ratio, both here and in the United States, actually shoots up and very, very high. So the PE ratio is very, very high. The immediate commentary you will find across the globe is markets in a bubble. Whether that's the case or not is debatable, but you can't tell from the PE ratio because the PE ratio has to be extraordinarily high because the profits are falling off a cliff. And unless you think that those profits falling off a cliff will remain that low, then PEs are too high. You know what I mean? Or too low, I should say. So they, they go shoot up on the expectation that once we get through the pandemic profits will will normalize and therefore the PE ratio will basically correct by itself that's how it works so this is example number one but if you look at the PEs without a context you're drawing the absolute wrong conclusion right and this is what you regularly see with with uh, with with companies is that if the market is anticipating that growth will recover from a very low level it will place companies on a high PE because if you place it on a low PE, that means you've given up, essentially. And this is why, for example, a, a stock that is, has been sold off, it's, it's, it's lowly priced, and then the PE is very low, it actually means the market is giving up. The market is telling you this company is not going to recover. Okay? Now, the market is not always 100% correct, but... In those cases, and there are quite a few examples in the past, I would be not very confident in going against the market. I mean, in those cases, the market, more often than not, has really figured it out. Right? And we have some examples uh, from the recent years. I mean, I remember uh, probably one of, one of the examples over the past decade was Slater and Gordon. We also had a company called Paperlinks. And I remember, I mean, uh, all the people getting excited about Paperlinks or Slater and Gordon when the PE was very low and the share price had come down a lot. And you can just watch from the sidelines and telling people, listen, you're, you're making a big mistake here by thinking that the low PE at the low share price is, is an excellent buy. And as ultimately 
turned out there's no paper links anymore. And uh, Slate and Gordon ultimately lost, listen to this one, lost 96% from, from its peak. Right? And this is why people go wrong, right? by automatically assuming it's a low P, the share prices come off a lot. Uh, I am sitting on a bargain here. Why is nobody buying this? Because you are the joker in the game now. Um, so it should be, this is contraintuitive, but it should be that the share price that falls, as for example, we've seen in the recent years, the likes, for example, of uh, Blackmores. I mean, Blackmores came off from $200 to something in the $80, $90 range. It had a high PE, and you see a lot of people saying, like, it's not cheap enough, right? Well, that's a misunderstanding of how PEs work. Right? Probably the better, the better example is, um, is BHP. I mean, the irony is that uh, BHP at the moment, I believe from memory, is trading around a PE of 12. Uh, that is relatively high for a commodity producer. But then BHP is one of the largest companies in the world. And it, it has quite a, a suite of products to, to rely on. Maybe a better example would be uh, Fortescue, which predominantly is one commodity, which is iron ore. Yep. At the moment, Fortescue is trading on a P of uh, nine and a half. That seems like, ooh, that's, that's not, not quite high. Yeah? But the nine and a half quickly becomes seven next year. And that gives an indication that analysts are actually forecasting that iron ore will not remain at last year's or at this year's price level. And that will translate, all else being equal, in, in less profits for Fortescue. So the true PE is actually 7. And uh, 7 is not a great PE to... Uh, it can still go lower, by the way. Coal producers at the moment are, are trading on very low PEs. They're probably more like 5. And 5 means because we have peak coal prices. Five means the market is pretty much convinced that the, the current exceptionally conditions for that sector, it's not going to last. Because that the P would go up if people were buying and uh, the price was going up. Yes, exactly. That's, a, so that's even like with White, Whitehaven, for example. Yes. So um, Whitehaven... Acting like a stonk, as we say on Twitter. Well, the thing is, it works very well in hindsight. PEs mm. don't give you any sense of timing. So the fact that Whitehaven is trading on, let's say, five times next year's profits, it doesn't mean it can't go to three, which basically means the share price will just go higher, yes. But what is at some point will happen is that the coal price will drop. And then if you then extrapolate the falling coal price in the share price, then the PE automatically goes up a lot. Some people might have to get their head around this, but in, in terms of practical examples, yeah. between the middle of 2015, and, and early 2016, uh, that was a terrible time for the local banks and for the resources stocks. And by 2016, the PE of the sector in general had risen above 20. As it turns out, that, that was the moment to buy resources stocks. That was the, the highest PE for the sector in more than a decade. The share prices were low, yeah. but the profit forecasts were even lower. Mm. So, the, so basically the, the, the prices for commodities had to reach the bottom basically and had, had fallen a lot over that period. And if that happens, then the PE becomes really, really high, which is the time you buy them. Mm. Because at another time, if you go back to 2008, for example, PEs were, were a lot lower. And um, that's why uh, at the point in time, you, you didn't want to buy BHP at 50 bucks, but you may want to buy it at 13 and the irony is when it was 13, which was, was, was in that period, 
on some forecasts, I remember on consensus forecasts for BHP specific, uh, the PE had risen to 80, 80. And I always remember on Macquarie's forecast, it actually matched, matched 100. <laughs> All right? and, it's, and, and, I, and I do remember because I pay attention. Nobody, atten- I, I do nobody pay, knows anything, do they? <laughs> I do pay, exactly. I do pay attention to those things. Yeah. And that gives you, again, an example. Like One of my favorite stocks in the market is, is, is a stock like, like CSL. And people would, would say, like, you can't possibly buy CSL at, at a P of 30, which is around where this is now. But they should have bought BHP at 100 or at mm. 80. Right? Mm. And that's the irony. And again, a PE needs context. And just to give another example, uh, where PEs can be, can be very handy is um, when you compare companies in, in the same sector. Because you see, this is where you also come to the exceptions in learning French. Yeah? Mm. Not every sector is trading on the same PE. I mean, banks, for example, until recently, banks would never trade higher than a PE of 15. Uh, only CBA, Commonwealth Bank, on occasion reaches as high as 18. Uh, the other banks never get that high. That's because PEs for banks actually don't really. And also because banks are leveraged business models. I mean, they, they could possibly never trade on a, on a 30 or a 40, what the, what the CSL does. Um, now, coming back to, to, to a company like healthcare. I mean, healthcare stocks in Australia, um, we, we have some of, the, some of the world's best Resmed, Cochlear, uh, you could potentially add Sonic Healthcare, definitely CSL. Now they trade. If you look at, if you look at, with exception now of Sonic, which again explains the dynamic that's specific for Sonic at this point in time. But the likes of, of Resmed, Cochlear, CSL, I recently, the market is not. The mar- there's a lot of intelligence in markets. Yeah, I had a look at Resmed and CSL recently. If you go two years out then both are trading on a P of 27. That's probably not a coincidence. I mean, the market has figured it out that they have similar dynamics and, and two years ahead, they're pretty much trading on, on 27. Now, is 27 more expensive than three or five for a coal producer? Probably not. Uh, you have to see it in, in the sector and in the context. Now, why are the likes of... Um, Resmed and, and CSL trading on, on, let's say, 27, two years out, is because the profit trajectory for both companies is, is relatively s- reliable. I wouldn't say stable, because it's not stable, because it's growing, um, but it's very dependable, very forecastable, very reliable. Yes, there are variations. Yes, bad things can happen, but both grow independently of the economy. We are going towards a recession. I mean, that is almost a given. Even if the recession doesn't show up in the local GDP figures, it will show up uh, internationally. Right? Global growth next year is predicted to fall below 3%. That is usually a time when bad things happen. And so we should be prepared for bad things. Usually what happens is if we are preparing for bad things, then the likes of ResMed and CSL become in focus with investors because those companies are, are rather unlikely to issue a heavy profit warning which you have more chance of happening with with a small cap technology stock or a highly leveraged uh, bank or, or a small cap retailer. Uh, because if consumers close their wallets, then what do you do, right? You, can, you have to discount and that means you, can, you make less profits. And that all those factors are ultimately translated in, into different PEs for different sectors. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, I just wanted to unpick. There's a couple of things to unpick there. So I just wanted to... The PE ratio or the PE metric um, actually works a little bit better if it's only applied within a, a sector. Yes. So you can't use it to say, you know, um, work out uh, the relative value of a BHP and a CSL because they're in exactly. different sectors. Exactly, yes. Okay. And that's lesson number one, which yep. a lot of investors uh, have yet to understand and yet, mm-hmm. yet to incorporate. I... I I often make comparisons just with daily life to just make it easy to understand. Mm. If I would come to you and they say, like, I've bought something for $12 at the supermarket. It was extremely cheap. And you would think, like, well, what has he bought? Mm. I mean, how do I know whether $12 is cheap? Yeah? And, it's, and, and it's exactly the same in the share market. I mean, I've bought something at a PE of pull in the number. Yeah. And, and I go like, ah, oh, a bargain. And mm. you go like, well, what was it? <laughs> I mean, it's not the PE itself that shows it to you. Yeah, mm. And... Also, if I if I go to a to a to a car shop and I go like, well, what do you have? And if they say to me like, well, I have a car from eight hundred dollars, I go like, yeah, mm, probably not. Probably that doesn't have wheels or anything, or mm. the engine is gone, right? Or it's really old. Because you yeah. real, exactly yeah. you realize eight hundred dollars is nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. the same question you should ask in the share market. Yeah, if you find, with the exception of commodity stocks, which which might be at peak prices, but if you find a, a financial or an industrial stock, if you find it at a very exceptionally low PE, Paper Links, Slater & Gordon, um, you should really start asking questions, yeah? It's not a great bargain, yeah? It's probably very problematic. Mm. The other thing is, if that if, if one of the car dealers offers me a Ferrari for $150,000, it sounds a lot, but it's a bargain, mm. yeah? Like, who buys a Ferrari for $150,000, yeah? The only problem, of course, is I don't have a, a lazy $150,000 somewhere, but... It gives you an idea that the number itself doesn't give you yep. the full picture. It needs context. And also implicit in what you were talking about is one of the questions which I didn't get around to asking, though, and that's the difference between a trailing and a forward PE ratio. That, that's what you're talking about when you're looking, yes. looking, looking backwards past. and looking, looking forward. Yeah. So where do the forward estimates come from? Well, they come from analyst forecasts, essentially. And, and one of the things we do with Afinawina, we, we combine the analyst forecast and and we create a consensus out what's of what's an analyst well uh, most stockbrokers mm-hmm. have have analysts which uh, on occasion they pay a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, and these guys are supposedly very good with numbers and 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 if they are experienced enough they they learn their their industry and and often like for example in the us in particular also in australia we we, we often have people from the industry for example, you might have ex, ex mining engineers, for example, that uh, are now analyzing, analysts. analyzing mining yeah. companies. Mm. My, I mean, la- so my last guest, in fact, was a well, mining well, well, engineer who became a yes, mining well, analyst. Yeah. So, mm. so that's the kind of, and they, they basically their job is to analyze companies and to decide which company is, is, is looking good and which company mm. is looking not that good. I mean, we're not the only ones in the world doing that. I mean, Bloomberg, Reuters, Thomson Reuters these days, um, they all they all do it. Mm. And and that gives you an idea about, I mean, the forecast. I mean, And, the, and then there's a consensus as well. Yes, you're looking yes, at, you, build, a you build a consensus, although, yeah. you, although you have outliers, of course, because a forecast by one analyst is, 
is just that. I mean, mm. and and then even that, it doesn't mean that the consensus is always correct. But just like the weatherman, uh, it gives you it gives you an idea. Mm. If if the weatherman says we're gonna have two weeks of pouring rain, if it's ten days, if it's seven days, I mean he's wrong. Yeah. But yep. it, it might still have been a good idea to have an umbrella with you, right? And it's the same in the share market. I mean, if they say this is going to happen and it's not quite correct, which usually is the case, the direction of the, of often is is, uh, is is equally important. I mean, it's good to know that a company um, that has a few bad years ahead of itself, or even one bad year, or whether it's 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 just it's just a, an ongoing strong growth story, right? Mm. I'm by no means saying that investors uh, should always ignore the past. I mean, I'm I'm one of the, the people who often pays a lot of attention to the past, because the past, the history of a company, can give you some good ideas about what that company is about, its track record, how does it usually perform, and all of that. It also shows you how cyclical companies are, and and if you see these huge swings in 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 company profits. Well, that gives you an idea what type of company you're 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 investing in or what and you're looking what, at, and what kind of economic conditions that happened Ex- in exactly. as well. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And for example, I mentioned earlier that because we have so much tightening by central bankers this year and high inflation, interruption, and, and etc., it doesn't take much before we have a global recession next year. Which again, if you're looking forward, um, that should all else being equal be showing up in the forward forecasts. The problem at this point in the cycle is that that's not the case, um, because um, neither economists, neither analysts uh, have an idea on how to price that in, how to project that, how, what does that mean for, for companies. So as an investor, that's the context that you have around today's valuations and price earnings ratio. So the, the obvious thing to conclude here is that the forecast for, let's say, a ResMed or a CSL should be all else being equal much more reliable than for orica or for fortescue metals or even for for an anz bank and that also translates in why some stocks at particular points in the cycle become by default more attractive because meant the less chance of a very bad experience basically but the irony is that once you come out of the recession and the market starts looking forward again then it's often the shittiest companies that perform the best because they've probably sold down the most. And if we do get an economic uh, recovery out of the depths of the recession, then they usually stand to benefit the most. And the irony then is that they are probably trading at that point in time on a high PE, which again confuses. I mean, how can this be a good buy when it's a high PE? Well, it's because there's a recovery uh, most likely around the corner and that's being reflected in the PE. Is, is that what's known as a defensive stock when you look at, say, a, a CSL or a healthcare stock? Is that part of that overall umbrella that we say defensive? Yes. When we're battening down the hatches for it any is. possible downward future moves? It is. And it, it is part of my journey in discovering why PEs were not working the way that everyone made me believe that they were. Um, because this is obviously not, not the first downturn, not the first bear market we are encountering in the share market. And I remember in previous times when people were saying CSL is defensive. And I literally questioned, I said, like, well, how can it be defensive if it's trading on a P of 38 or something along those lines? You know I mean? Shouldn't it be on 9 or 12 yeah, as a defensive stock? And that is, I think, the logical conclusion you at first draw because 
that's what sort of the general consensus tells you, I mean, mm. like in, in times of, of uh, economic duress, until you start investigating and you, and you learn that's not how it works, essentially. I mean, the irony in Australia is that um, the index essentially hasn't moved since 2012. We briefly uh, superseded the, the peak from, uh, from late 2007. So it has been a little bit of a lost decade in Australia. And the irony is that the gains in the index that have been made over that period, they've all been made by high PE stocks. Yeah? The likes of Aristocrat Leisure, Goodman Group, Macquarie uh, Group, uh, CSL. Hence so many value investing funds underperforming yes. for year after yes. year. Ex- Always warning about what's around the corner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're playing it safely. And, it's, and it's yeah. also, there's also a big argument to be made that what worked very well in, in previous decades is not necessarily working today. Things have changed so much. Economy so has changed. Technology has changed. Technology has changed. Mm-hmm. The, the composition of the share market has changed. And most importantly, I mean, a lot of value investors are very stuck in old ways. And for example, the intelligent investor, Benjamin Graham, he literally writes that um, he doubts whether forecasts by Wall Street analysts add a lot of value. Um, but he does say unless they change in the, in the future and, and he's dead a long time. And I think since then, the sector has become a lot more sophisticated. One of, one of the examples I, I could point out for that is... Mm. Um, yes, like you brought, I, you brought I, a, um, I, a random yes. access paper-based device along I have, today. The other thing, I, I, I have yet to encounter a great investor who doesn't read. And I read a lot. I read books, but also read a lot of research as well, which makes me learn a lot. One of the pleasant surprises I came across recently, and I and I've, I've mentioned the book this 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 week in my in my story, uh, because I still want to do a book review, but um, time is not always on my hands. So this book is called The Little Book of Valuation, and the subtitle is How to Value a Company, Pick a Stock, and Profit. And the author is Aswath Damodaran. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. Now he's a professor in the United States, and he is reputedly the best uh, expert or the highest regarded expert on company valuations of our lifetime here, in our time. Um, apparently, he's, he's a terrible stock picker, but he knows his thing. So what, what made me realize, which I subconsciously had concluded myself, is that it's not just the difference in sectors. There's actually an argument he makes in this book. It's the different phases of a company's development that require a different way of, of valuing them, essentially. Um, so you have startup companies, you have companies that move to the, to the next phase, ultimately they become more mature, and then start paying dividends and all of that, and they have a steady uh, client base, and then there's, there's the final phase, which is the decline. I mean, And one of the things he worries about in the book and he warns about is that when companies go in decline, you often see that translating into a low PE ratio because the market is telling you that company is, is on the way out. Now, those processes can sometimes take a long time. And again, by then buying a low PE stock, I mean, Slayton Gordon, for example, not Slayton Gordon goes bankrupt, but there's, there's a lot of uh, energy not, no longer in the company. And you have them in the US, of course, as well. I mean, General Electric would be one of those big examples, I mean. The big uh, technology companies from the 90s, I mean, they're rarely featured today. IBM is a great example. Right? They, on many occasions, uh, look relatively cheap if you only look at the P-E ratio, but they're dogs. Right? They don't perform. 
And it's not like they pay great dividends either. So there's more to it. There's a lot more to it than even than I, than I practice. And it also made me realize that you have to be a little bit of a freak to, uh, to constantly uh, put your nose into the numbers and figure out um, which sector or which company then in that sector, in the particular phase it is of its own development, how to value that. The other thing which our companies and even analysts constantly struggle with is the difference between companies. And you see that in Australia as well. So I, I call that the, the premium. Some, some companies, they always trade at a premium. And I've made those comparisons in the past often. Mm. Uh, for example, REA Group uh, always trades at a premium uh, in comparison to, so dom- to one, domain. Which one's that? REA. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. In comparison to domain. Mm-hmm. Right? And the result is that often... People go, oh, buy domain, buy domain. Huh? I go, no, no, you buy REA. Yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and in the banks, the best example is the banking sector locally. Right? Ever since I came to Australia, more than 20 years ago, people have constantly been complaining that uh, CBA is too, exp- too expensive, mm-hmm. quotation marks. Right? And that premium has never disappeared, with exception of at the depths of the, of the GFC. And, and after that, it quickly returned. And, and I can I can tell from uh, because that's one of the things we do we, we we monitor analysts on a daily basis and analysts are on many occasions struggling with the fact that why is CBA so much higher valued than the other banks and and always the the knee jerk response is uh, buy NNZ buy Westpac buy National Australia Bank sometimes even buy Bank of Queensland buy Suncorp Group buy uh, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank on most occasions the the, the so called catch up by the by the cheaper banks a it can sometimes take a long time secondly it only works temporarily because i've actually done the numbers on a number of occasions if you have a longer term view then the irony is that the bank that offers you the highest premium so basically the highest pe and the lowest yield because it's it's trading on the on on premium valuation it gives you the better returns all else being equal uh, cba when there's a crisis it falls less, and in the good times, it gains more than all the other banks. Mm. So again, there's the irony that you have to understand why some companies trade at a premium. Essentially, why is a Ferrari worth more than a Volvo? Mm. And mine, it is. Being well, half Italian, I can tell you <laughs> straight away why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the same principle is in the share market. Okay, Rudy, so tell listeners about FN Arena and how they can get in touch with you and um, especially your Twitter profile. (laughs) As a fellow, I'm always going about that Twitter's my favourite social media platform, which a lot of people can't understand. Yes, I I, I like to challenge people sometimes on Twitter and and steer them up a little bit and low and high PE ratios could be one of them. Um, But FN Arena, that's just the F from Freddy and the N from Nelly. You could argue it stands for financial news, but we just thought like FN, I mean, it's something that uh, that just stands out a little bit on its own. It doesn't tell you what it is, but we build a business around making uh, the world of the experts more transparent. And we started off by, by collating all the information from the major stockbrokers. And we made that available. And over time, we, uh, we create a lot of services around that. We do our own calculations. Uh, we write stories. We, I do my own analysis on top of that because we've been doing it for such a long time. We, uh, we have our own data. Again, that gives us another tool to, uh, to analyze the markets and etc. We are probably one of the few services in Australia that's truly independent. 
So we have no, no tie with any of the media companies, uh, no investment banks, uh, etc. And we are probably also one of the few that's very fearless in what we do, very truly independent. And again, uh, I know I'm talking about book here, we're probably also one of the few that, has, that combines a lot of the experts with a lot of the retail investors. And um, I often joke to retail investors, uh, telling them, you know, your stockbroker is probably using us. And he's probably using us to give you advice. <laughs> or the financial planner, or the fund manager, I mean, because they're all in there, right? And that's because we, um, I think we're, we're, we're on a relatively um, cheap price level, and, and we offer a lot. We're like a VCR. There's so much that some people are just being discouraged by, by the, uh, just the sheer amount that we offer. Yep, I've already got the uh, daily emails. One or two a day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a lot. But uh, we've been doing it for, for a very long time now. We've come, uh, I think we've become quite good at it. And, um, and most importantly, um, and that's, what, that's also one of the things that people really like about us, we're not pushing anything. Mm. I mean, I don't, personally, I don't care how many shares you buy, how many, cares, how many shares you sell. Uh, I'm simply passing on insights, information, data, and our biggest thing is education. I mean, high PEs, low PEs will be one of them. And, but there's so much more to learn about share markets. And, and instead of giving people a fish, I think it's better to teach them how to fish. Because then they can invest every day. Really, Philip Heck van Dyke, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 